And we're back with episode 11 of Graphic Content. We're still in the double digits, Adam. That's pretty awesome, if you ask me. Uh, I'm excited. I'm yeah. excited. Well, you know, when you think about it, we're going to be in double digits now for the for as as long as, as this podcast keeps going at this point. So, well, yay, double digits. Well, preferably, preferably, I'd like to hit triple digits one day. I think it's possible. I mean, yeah. if, we, if we keep up our weekly pace... Yeah, you, know, you think we can? I think I definitely think we can. So, and we've got some interesting news that I'm going to tease right now. Um, we might be going to two podcasts a week. So, oh, really? Yeah, but Adam has no idea what the hell I'm talking no, about. No, he just dropped this on me live. I, I love to see the look on his face when we're on mic actually doing I mean, this stuff right I now. Would, I would love that, honestly. So uh, stay tuned. I'll give you the information off, uh, off air, and then when I get it confirmed, then I'll let everybody else out there in the interwebs know what the hell is going on with graphic content. But so Great. far... We've gotten some great feedback to all of our listeners who've stuck with us since the beginning. Thank you to our new listeners. Thank you to our future listeners. I had a couple people like thank you. DM I'm thanking me. our future listeners. Oh, Do sorry. you mind? I'm I, sorry. I was doing a little dramatic pause there. For I, crying I out. apologize. <laughs> I was just saying I was excited because listeners contacted me. What? And they said they enjoyed our podcast. That's fantastic. So, Do you want to give a shout out to those listeners? Uh, David. Farwin, uh, okay, you're he's he's a friend I've known for about gosh ten years. Okay. We worked together at Craig's, but we haven't talked a lot recently. Okay, and so he said he really enjoyed our podcast, and so well, David, thank you for listening. Yeah, uh, we think you're awesome. So shout out to you, sir. So this is it. This is episode eleven, which will pair very nicely with the lost episode, episode seven. That's right. Seven is coming out. Seven and eleven, and for uh, all you OCD people, exactly. So we we just like the, the I just like the feeling of episode seven and eleven coming coming it out works. at the same yeah. time. They're both on creator owned books. Uh, we'll be talking about creator owned books in a minute, but as a programming note, uh, we're going to start dropping our episodes on Thursdays. It's going to give me more time to edit an episode, to give it the tender loving care that each episode requires so I'm not on this all-night deadline yeah, uh, and try to work a real job, you know, which sometimes can, my real job can keep me at our site up until 10, 12, 14 hours. So it, it'll let me work on it a little bit longer. And plus, it gives us the, uh, the nifty lo- uh, motto of... You know, uh, after you finish your comics, listen to us the next day since comics release on release on, on Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll work that out so it flows a little okay. bit. Okay. A little it's bit. It's in better. progress. It, but you get the idea. You know. Yeah, for sure. When you finish your comics on Wednesday, listen to us on Thursday. You see, we're we're workshopping it right now. We're trying to get it figured out. But that's the programming note right now. So Thursdays will be our new drop days for uh, new episodes. Preteens, so we're g- growing and changing. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in puberty. <laughs> yeah, that was my voice changing. We're 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 in puberty cast. <laughs> that must be it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to talk about puberty anymore. It's been a few years. Oh, just a just a couple. Just a couple. Just a couple. It was like three lifetimes ago. So, yeah. create your own books, Adam. <laughs> Transition, Transition like a train wreck. You know, like a train wreck. You know, creator-owned books, I think, right now drive so much 
more of the marketplace than it has in in the last twenty years. Oh, Image came out with uh, with I want to say to me it started with Chew. Yeah, and then fucking Image started putting boots to asses. Like about how long do you think after Eric Stevenson took over did did that take? I mean, maybe a year, maybe two. I mean, I can't remember exactly when he took over. But they found. They found, you know, there was the change of leadership. I mean, Eric Larson wanted to concentrate on other stuff. And Eric Stevenson stepped up to be the guy who ran the day-to-day of Image. But it became more than just uh, an art house studio. It became more than just a a coalition of like-minded artists. It became really um, almost an incubator to borrow a term from my favorite comedy, Silicon Valley. Um, But it became an incubator for fantastic talent for both new talent and for popular guys out there it, who who were looking for an outlet that the big two or Dark Horse or some some of the other uh, bigger publishers weren't providing them. It's funny because I look at Image as almost like a double-A ball team and a major league ball team at the same time. You know, it, it, it kind of is, and actually. And then you have your, you know, Marvel and DC is your triple A's. Well, Marvel and DC is more like the Yankees and the Red Sox, really. <laughs> I, don't, I, mean, I don't know. Uh, I think at this point, when you've got such a mass exodus of creators coming over from from Marvel and DC, and they're making their own money, and I mean, they're... To me, that's like the ultimate big time is when you can your own name pulls readers in and pulls the amount of money as opposed to Marvel or DC. Well, you know, whenever Stevenson did take over the reins of of the day-to-day publishing over at Image, it seemed like there was this shift that took place. You know, when they became the incubator for independent comics talent out there, Eric Stevenson, you know, changed the marketplace for comics with the revitalization of Image with making it a home for wayward big two creators as well as incubating new talent simultaneously. And that's cool. That's really neat. And what it also helped to do is I think it kind of, you know, gave a good kick in the ass to the rest of the comic book industry to start putting out new stuff. You know, around that same time, I want to say Dark Horse lost the Star Wars license and or give or take, maybe they did so within that a few years. That was a few years, yeah. Was it a few years afterwards? Yeah, because I want to say... Because it was like 2012 when it was announced. That I remember... Um, well, I remember it was 07, 06 when Stevenson took over. Okay, so I wanna, then, then it was what a I few say. years later. That's why we have Adam here, because his memories are much more well, recent than I mine. remember the way I correlate it is because uh, Nightly News came out around that time, uh-huh. and I think Stevenson was the one responsible for pulling uh, Jonathan Hickman's uh, cold pitch out of the submissions pile. Interesting. Okay. That's a book that we have to get into. It's not on either of our agendas to talk about today. It but will be one day if we do a if we do a Hickman themed podcast. Oh, I got things to say about Jonathan Hickman. I mean, that guy is fantastic. With and and I mean, talk about a guy who always swings for the fences, whether it it is a foul ball or or whether it's a home run. I, I mean, think honestly, I have yet to read a foul ball by him. Yeah, I mean, other people might have different opinions. I mean, whether it was his independent work, like you said, with Nightly News, or going through his Avengers run at Marvel, which Avengers and New Avengers, essentially creating the the lead-up to Secret Wars, 
which... Honestly, that stuff, I didn't... I only read Infinity because a lot of it was so intimidating to me uh-huh. because I know how much depth he puts in his work. God, those, it, I don't think the Avengers books have ever been deeper than they have been when John Hickman was writing them. I, I wow. really don't, ever. Well, I tried to read the first one, and I'm like, this is so heavy with, like, Jerome Pena uh-huh. and all that, and, like, Ex Nilo or whatever. Ex Nilo and... and uh, they all had that yeah. other language, and I was just like, this is so... Like, I was like, I'm just going to have to take a time. And I, I knew, I said, when this is finished, that's when I'll read it, because this is going to be one of those things... Uh, keeping track of it month to month is for me would be next to impossible with everything else. Yeah, going it was on. something that I was doing, and I and I had to have it every month. I mean, seriously, I was mainlining Jonathan Hickman's Avengers. Like, I needed a new hit. So when he started writing new Avengers, it was like, oh, thank God. And then Avengers, <laughs> I know he did the first like story arc of Avengers World. Yeah, exactly. So it was it was all this good stuff, but we're not here to talk about Marvel Comics. No. No. Been fact, there, done that. Been there, done that. And we're gonna do it again. You know? Absolutely. I mean, Marvel, you know, they are they are one of the cornerstones of the industry. But we're definitely gonna talk Marvel in the future. But, but for, Jonathan Hickman as being somebody who I wanna say is a pioneer and creator on comics. Absolutely. And definitely without him, I don't think we would have uh, as big, I, I don't think we would have as big of a spotlight on what we're covering today. Yeah, I, I, I think that Jonathan Hickman, within a year or two, I mean, th- this is who we had. We had like guys like Jonathan Hickman, Rick Remender, uh, mm-hmm. Brian Wood came mm-hmm. out. I mean, I think maybe he was out a little bit earlier before them, but you know, give or take, I mean, th- a whole generation. They, they broke through to the mainstream. Exactly. And their books, I mean, all of their creator-owned work has been optioned into feature films. So they're just, you know, making, not just making money, but they are increasing the visibility of non-superhero stories in the comic book industry. Um, with Brian Wood, his his newest one over at uh, Dark Horse, Briggs mm-hmm. Land, uh, came out with, and they said this straight from the get-go, it came out with a pilot in production. No shit. Yeah, like, they, like the way he made it sound, which it's physically impossible was that they were going to release number one. And then like within the next year, like the series was going to start on T on like AMC. That's amazing. And, and what's I'd, the book about? Cause I haven't had a chance it's to, essentially, to look at it. It's essentially a redneck version of sons of anarchy. Okay. Uh, without the motorcycles and more trucks. And so shit. like hillbilly mafia kind of stuff. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, uh, the, the patriarch was a complete, Douchebag, mm-hmm. and so the matriarch had her husband or her her uh, his wife had enough of it and said fuck all this and is going to take take the, the take the family and go take, well not take the family and go but take the empire for herself oh shit so the whole thing is her basically weaving in and out of the politics and blowing shit yeah. up and and uh, you know, ta- I'm always a sucker a- for explosions. You yeah, know. doing a hostile takeover. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I just saw that movie. Have you seen this? Uh, Out of the Furnace with Christian Bale and Woody Harrelson. And I didn't uh, even know that was a thing. It's a thing, and it's it's hillbilly mafia. It's a hillbilly crime movie, basically, uh, that takes place in Steel Country. I think in either Eastern Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Western Ohio, or Eastern Ohio, not Eastern Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah. Hello, I know geography good. <laughs> um, 
But it's a, it's a great movie about a guy who works at a steel mill whose family situation kind of spirals out of control when his younger brother gets involved with this illegal fight club in, in you know, the Rust Belt. And it, it's just, so Briggsland is the name of it. Brian Wood is writing it, and I'm then, assuming. It. Yeah, He's doing the art on that. This this guy, I've, I've not heard of him before. His name is Matt Chatter. Okay. Um, he does a great job. Um, okay. And I think Lee Luridge is on colors, and it it looks good. Okay. Uh, I, and Dark Horse is putting it out. Yeah, they're, they just wrapped up the first mini. It's going to be a series of miniseries. Okay. Uh, they're gearing up for the second miniseries, and I want to say that drops within the next couple of months. So the first trade is out. Fantastic. So I didn't mean to cover that, but there no, we go. No, but that sounds... But I'm sitting here going, you know, this sounds right up my alley, especially... And you need to see Out of the Furnace. If you like a good crime movie... Okay. Where... There aren't necessarily happy endings to it, mm-hmm. to to that, or you know, there's kind of a B storyline to it as well. Um, I can't recommend that that movie. Honestly, enough. I'll probably hit it up tonight. Yeah, you, I mean, honestly, so. it's that good. It is that good. Christian Bale, um, uh, Casey Affleck, Woody Harrelson, Forrest Whitaker, Zoe Saldana. Jesus Christ! Um, I. Cannot remember Sydney Porty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Willem Dafoe, he's in it. Jeez, uh, it, it's a fantastic cast, and it is brutal. And they don't hold back any punches, and they take real risks to the story uh, with that film. But anyway, that's another podcast in and of itself. Talking yeah. about movies, well, we love. But I, before we started and, and went on air, you said. You were going to cover three books. I said I was going to cover mm-hmm. three books. And these I know these aren't in any order. They're just books that we they're fucking just, love. They're just books that, you know, it's funny. Um, there's one series that I'm following right now that I am that I started about a, you know, a year ago when it came out. But then I, I fell off of it. So now I'm, it's up to issue 13. And that's a book called Copperhead, which is by uh, Jay Ferber. I believe is how you pronounce his name, who's been around, or Ferber, but I think yeah. it's Ferber. Um, and then Scott Godlewski. And the he's name. the co- co-writer, right? He's, well, I would say probably co-plotter, you know. if okay. I don't know how he's building it. I, I don't have the comic right okay. in front of me. Okay, But he's, I mean. Is he the, is he in the artist? He, he's the illustrator, okay. yeah. He's, okay. Yeah. For he, a second, I got it confused with Rumble. Yeah, he's, he does the work with Drew Moss. Who's doing okay. the, the inks on that? You know, and I've said I've alluded to this before. I'm a major Star Wars fan. Like, besides just comics and pop media and stuff like that. If you guys got a chance to come into his house, you would see so much Star Wars shit. Yeah, I've got half of it on his body. Yeah, I mean, I'm wearing a Star Wars uh, disobey shirt right now with a Finn stormtrooper helmet with the three blood stains. With I've with, got Yoda over life size Yoda over Adam's shoulder, literally right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I keep waiting for him to dispense some wisdom, but nothing yet. He's just being creepy. Yeah, he's watching you right now. Yeah, you can't walk ten feet and not step on a holocron. I mean, it's for it's, sure. I, I have I have a fever, and I have a fever for more Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> My bad Christopher Walken. I was Every, wondering what the fuck that was. Everybody has a bad Christopher Walken impersonation, I think. So uh, you never saw that SNL episode? No, I guess you were like two when that came out. So, yeah, um, I have no clue. <laughs> so anyway, Copperhead kind of falls in with my love of Star Wars. You know how it, Tatooine 
is this frontier town. It, it's got like a Western sort of feel. You have mm-hmm. the indigenous tribes, which are the sand people. And then you've got those wretched, evil motherfuckers. Then you've got like Moss Eisley, which is like Deadwood. And uh, that was kind of the pitch line. I was reading an interview or it was not the interview. Excuse me. It was it was uh, Jay Ferber writing in the letters column space in the first issue. And that for the longest time, he had the idea for the show uh, Deadwood in Space. Have you ever seen Deadwood on HBO? I've not, but I'm familiar with what it's about. So David Milch, one of the great showrunners in all of television, um, I'm telling you, with NYPD Blue basically owned the crime drama space in the 1990s, the mid to late 1990s. Before Law and Order? Before, well, it was kind of concurrent to Law and Order. Law and Order's run for, what, 30 seasons at this point? Well, they canceled the original, and now they're just on SVU. Yeah, they they have the soul-crushing unit still on right now. Yeah, Uh, Soul victimization unit. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the... um, But anyway, David Milch... Uh, did this series for HBO, which was Deadwood, which was a Western, but it was a Western uh, about how a town would really be. It was dark, it was ugly, it was full of disease. It, It was an ugly place, usually run by ugly people, and there were very few good people in these frontier mining towns. And it it's Deadwood in space, so you have that sort of... What I mean, it is as hardcore a Western as you will ever read. I mean, it's right up there with the great Western books, you know, like Jonah Hex, Scalp Hunter. Um, you know, I'm blanking on other Western comics right now, but it's it's very much a Western comics, but with ray guns and land speeders and weird aliens and artificial humans that they call Ardies. Um, oh wow! Yeah, I mean, they're they're oddly colored hairless artificial humans that earth basically vat grew or, or were vat grown to fight their war against the alien uh, worlds that they conquered. So earth eventually left for the stars and it was like the westward expansion of the United States, essentially where they conquer planet after planet and beat down the indigenous species and assimilate them into their culture. Holy shit. And it's, it's, but they don't come out and beat you over the head with this history lesson. They just tell the story and you start absorbing it through like little side things that people say like, yeah, like what you did to my people, you know, and commentaries like that. Um, The first five issues I want to say are in a single trade paperback, then the next six are in another trade paperback. Uh, now, is so, this a finite series, or is it ongoing? Uh, I have not read that deep into it. Uh, so far, it's been ongoing. Or I should say at least it's open-ended. Jay Ferber likes to wrap his stuff up eventually, as we found with Noble Causes, uh, one of his earlier... He never got to do that with Dynamo 5, did he? I don't know or not, because I fell off of Dynamo 5, to be quite honest. Okay. Yeah, but Noble Causes, I was a huge fan of. I I thought that was a great book. Um, But with Copperhead, I'm just in it for the moment. So I just reread the first five issues this morning before going off to jury duty. Yeah, I work a full-time job, do a podcast, and I have jury duty right now. So, Are you actually on a jury? I am actually on a jury right now. Oh, nice. No, it is not. It, this is going to be an interesting story when it's all over, it, though. It, it, is an inter- it will be an interesting story when it's all over. It sucks it's, right now. It, but. It, it, it just sucks. It's a time sink. You know, my other job, work is backing up. But I'll tell you what, um, 
I feel like it's, it's, it's a worthwhile thing. So if you do end up getting selected, yeah, it's going to stink in the moment. But when you look back on it, you'll be glad you did it. Um, all that aside, you know, I was able to kind of cheer myself up this morning because, you know, heading into the third week of this jury that I'm on by reading the first five issues of Copperhead again. And it reads so quick. And it's so easy, and it uses so many of the old Western tropes of a single mom and her child arriving on this Western town, and they take the train from the spaceport. There's a maglev train, but it looks like kind of like an old-timey Western train, the kind there'd be a great train robbery on. And uh, then they go into this town with dirt roads, but you know, there's like both uh, beasts of burden coming down these dirt roads and land speeders at the Jeez. same time. It's It's literally... Uh, you've got I've got on my left hand Western on one side, and then you got Sci-Fi in the other, and then you put them together, and you have Copperhead, and it is a, now. Have, go ahead. Sorry, have no, they expl- Have they explained why it's called Copperhead? Yes, but those are in later issues. And so I, I believe you don't want to. Sp- I believe that's the town, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. So it, because it's nearby a, a uh, mining facility. But it doesn't have anything to do with like snakes or anything like that? No, okay. nothing, nothing to do with snakes. Okay. I can't I, stand snakes. Well, I just wasn't <laughs> sure if it was like a metaphor or something no, like that. No, I think that's the name of the town that they're in, if I remember correctly. God damn it. I, I hate it when I have these, these senior moments like this. Um, but there is, I mean, all they have... Okay, so you've got the single mom who was asked to be the sheriff instead of the alien deputy who is, is going to be in the... I mean, he has already achieved the highest rank that he's going to get because he's an alien and the, the humans run everything. So is it, it's essentially racism? Yeah, it's well, essentially... I mean, well, yeah. you know, it's it's racism, classism, whatever you want to yeah. call it. You know, it's essentially, fucking discrimination. He, he, it's discrimination. He, he has gone to the top of his food chain and he will always work for a human sheriff. So, but she was, uh, it's been alluded to that uh, whatever she was, but whatever kind of law enforcement position she was in before uh, ended in flames and she mo- needed to move to the other side of the galaxy to get away wow. from that business. Um, That's a hell of a thing. If you <laughs> fucked up so bad, you need to move to the other side of the galaxy. Well, you'll find out in later issues in the first, in the first five issues that she didn't so much fuck up as she fucked someone up. And that <laughs> caused her to have to resign and, and move to the so other side of the so universe. So she's on the run? Not so much on the run like, oh, I have to hide my identity and take a new identity. But, but professionally, she was done. You okay. know, she, she had burned her all of her professional bridges because she was a, an inveterate ass kicker. She you know, went out, she did her job, she sought justice, and she didn't take no for an answer. I mean, she, she's a good cop, you know, one of those yeah. sort of stories. And so she's basically taking care of her family. Which consists of her only son named Zeke. And um, then, you know, so the two of them move out into the frontier and they, they live across the way just outside of Copperhead City limits. They live near some dirt farmers. And Zeke has met the little girl next door. And they, they go on an adventure trying to find her lost dog in the first issue and then wind up, you find out what the indigenous species is to this planet. And it's frightening as fuck. I mean, it's like Starship Troopers kind of bad. Oh, holy shit. Yeah. I mean, there's so much stuff going on in this comic. And Ferber doesn't 
he's this is his own thing. You know, maybe in other companies they would push them to maybe drop more exposition. You know, put like narrator notes in there. You know, explain everything. But no, he he's just like waving you along, saying, "Come on for the ride. Come on along for the ride." Um, so he's piecemealing out the history of this of he, this place, right? And so you know, there's I, I don't know if, how well you know the old show Dukes of Hazard, but there's a boss hog type. So there's this fat squat bastard who runs the 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 mine that everybody, for the most part, works in nearby Copperhead. And uh, he's a son of a bitch, industrialist, you know, robber baron kind of asshole. Um, she's already kind of told him what fur at this point, but it hasn't come to loggerheads with him yet in the storyline. But he's like a looming, him and his cronies at this, at this mining corporation are uh, the looming threat. I think that's safe to say. Um, there's the town doctor who's a complete, I mean, he's like an old drunk human. You know, he's who is just constantly drunk and picking up women, and he's just a terrible human being himself. Well, how the fuck is he a doctor? Because he's living on the frontier and nobody gives a shit. I mean, the fact is, he can set a broken bone still, no matter how drunk he is. So, wow. Yeah, he's, that'll, yeah, I guess that's valuable. You know, if he's the only one that's there that can do that. To quote that guy from Nerdist, you know, that old chestnut. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's. You know, if if you want a book that 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 I, I don't mean to call it simple as a derogatory term, but it's a simple premise. It's a space western, and if you want a some space, of those are the most welcoming books. Yeah, I mean it's it's God, it's like watching Kevin Costner's Open Range or you know uh, Deadwood, like I mentioned before, or Unforgiven, and they wear their Western influences on their sleeves. But fuck, there's also ray guns and badass artificial humans that are, you know, like what's his name, like Roy Batty from Blade Runner, practically in level of badassery. Um, there's Boss Hog. If you're a Dukes of Hazard fan, you can't help but notice from the short, fat guy in a white suit. I mean, it's it's all terrible, but it's all great. Um, there's so much happening in this book. There's stuff that happens in the background. There's stuff, um, you know, they have a race of hillbilly squid-like people called the Alabamians. <laughs> <laughs> that name in and of itself, that's fucking amazing. Coming from a guy who half his family is from Alabama, so I'm oh. just saying, I was like, oh, hey, hang on a second. But no, it was fantastic. I cannot recommend this book enough because it's it's Star Wars, but leaning to the Western origins of what, what uh, made Star Wars Star Wars, you know, how that influenced uh, those films. So it's like Star Wars without the lightsabers, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And without the space battles. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, what, what would you get with the TV series that was built just on Tatooine? Okay. Yeah. Well, when you say space western, I think Firefly oh, and Serenity. Fantastic. You know, how that slipped my mind, I have no idea. Is that I, is it kind of in the yes, same vein? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without the planet hopping. So it's Okay, it's, so it's, it's all on one planet. Right. There's a single set piece small dust town and that's Copperhead, but it's definitely in the vibe of a Firefly or Serenity, you know. So that that's a great call out right there. So what What's something that came to mind for you? Okay, so I've got... I'm going to preface preface kind of the books I'm going through. Mm-hmm. I've got three creators that, no matter what, sight unseen, I will buy their shit. Okay. Um, 
and the first one, and usually at some point their work has highly influenced the way I look at comics and what can be done in the in comics and mm-hmm. the medium in and of itself. Um, and the first the first book we're going to look at is Local by Brian Wood and Ryan Kelly. Okay. So it follows a, a, a girl named Megan McKeon, mm-hmm. and it follows her for 12 issues. It start, and each issue represents a point in her life uh, that, that, like, the most important thing that happened that year with her. Um, and you get to follow her from the age of, I think, 18 to 35. Uh-huh. Something like that, if that math pans out. Yeah. Something, okay. yeah. 17 years. Yeah. So, well, yeah, you, you follow her over the 12 issues. And it's just fantastic because... Ryan Kelly draws such great grounded hum- humans mm-hmm. um, just in the muck of, I believe it takes, it starts in like 94, 95. Now, this is the book that came out from Oni, if I remember Absolutely. correctly. Yeah, that's okay, it. Okay, good. And this was my introduction to Brian Wood. Okay. I read an interview way back in the day when this came out, I think 2005, on Newsrama, and I thought, oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to check it out. Uh-huh. From there, I was hooked. It didn't come out regularly. But I'll be goddamned if I wasn't at the comic shop every week asking for it and paying attention and trying to find out when that next issue was coming out. And while a lot of them are self-contained, um, when you read it and see the overall story of, of Megan and the things that she's gone through and who she becomes and the way she fucks up and the way she interacts with other people who have fucked up later on as she's learned her lessons... Um, it's just fantastic, and uh-huh. it's e- extremely personal and grounded. That's fantastic. And it's very much slice of life okay. with this personal growth and the intensity that comes along with people and their personal growth. Huh. Um, it's all black and white. Okay. And uh, it's cool because the, the, the hardcover that's out looks like a journal. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. That that would help in sort of a meta way, I would say, sort of enhance the feeling to it. Yeah. You know, sort of like um, On the Road came out in journal formats, you know, the the Jack Kerouac. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been various journal, journal-like publications of that, which help give you that feel of being this vagabond through the United States. And that's exactly, each issue takes place in a different city, and Ryan Kelly has painstakingly gone through and recreated whatever that city looked like from that year. Fantastic. And uh, there's some issues that focus solely on Megan. Uh There's some issues, I think issue three focuses on a band that she likes called Theories and Defenses and goes about... (laughs) Sounds like a band that you would be a member of, actually. It it really does. And in fact, uh, as I was reading it, uh, when it came out, it reflected one of the bands that I was following locally and that I was good friends with, and I was freaked out. That's wild. Um. So it, in, in, in that, you only see Megan in a couple panels uh, when she finds out that one of the members of the, the band is a douche. Huh. Um, and they've split up, so the whole thing's through a narrative through, I think, the lead singer, lead guitarist, in an interview. Okay. Um, later on, you see her write to her cousin, and her cousin's this completely fucked up teenager who has no clue what he's doing. Um. Getting into fights, getting drunk as a teenager, uh, 
and you get to see how she cares for him, even though she's not really connected to any of her family members. Interesting. And she writes him postcards from wherever she's at. Huh. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I can't say enough good things about it. It was one of the things that I, whenever I, it came out, I, it, it opened my eyes to what comics can be. That's amazing. And that, com- that, it, that it can be more than just over-muscled fools beating the crap out of each other. Yeah, yeah. Even when I got, when I, d- quote-unquote, discovered independent comics, mm-hmm. uh, it was books like Spawn. It was books like Savage Dragon. While they're not superhero books, they're directly superhero-inspired. No, yeah. I and, mean, especially like Savage Dragon. Yeah. You know, you could say that Spawn was as much a horror-inspired comic as it was a superhero, but... Because of his look, but, but Savage at the end Dragon of the day, he wore had... its superhero influences on its sleeve. Yeah, and so to see that into something like this, uh-huh. where it's not quite American Splendor, where American Splendor has the 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 harsh day to day life, this has an overall narrative. Other than, you know, like Harvey Picard would wrap up kind of his lessons in the story, right? As to where this had an overall character that you got to follow for for each year and and see the growth from the get-go okay um and by the end of it you just fall in love with megan and you find out um and it, it, it makes you think about your own life and the experiences you've gone through and the things that make you who you are and how some of those things aren't fun yeah but they are heavy influences on your life yeah and throughout this whole series, that's what you see. And Brian Wood uh, writes such an amazing, amazing character in Megan, and has like just this distinct voice of of this girl that's that's growing up and changing, uh-huh. and having to face challenges of living out on her own in New York, right. being a waitress. At one point, she's in Canada, and uh, seeing how she's fucked up. Well, you know, and this, and, and maybe on an even bigger level, I think one of the things that I enjoy from your telling of this, and and why I am going to go out and find this book, I think it's ten bucks on Comixology. Okay, or well, I've been doing my 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 trades and graphic novels. I've been buying physical copies because I'm trying to build a little library of graphic novels here. This will look good on that yeah. on the shelf. But that real life, I wanted to say that real life is can be just as entertaining source material as any kind of space western or superhero or horror comic and stuff like that, it's all in the delivery. It's all in how you approach it as a storyteller. And that's what really is is putting the light behind my eyes of wanting to go find this book right now. Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't say enough of an imp- how much it had an impact on me. Now I buy anything from Brian Wood and Ryan Kelly, I buy almost sight unseen. Um, I Survivor's Club came out from Vertigo uh, a year or two ago, and I thought that book was awful, but it looked amazing, uh-huh. and anything that Ryan Kelly does, I'm there. Well, he did part of DMZ with Brian Wood, didn't yes. he? Yeah, yes. I thought He's I recognized his Him name. and Brian Wood have a pretty healthy library of collaborations. Cool. Unfortunately, they don't really collaborate anymore, uh-huh. and... Uh, that's really not my place to say. Well, you never know going. what might come about Absolutely. in the future. And know? I would really, to me, in my eyes, they very much had a synergy like 
Stanley, Jack Kirby, Q, uh, Busiek, Perez. I mean, they have this. They have a magic when they work together. Interesting. Um, they've done so so many books, and like they did a, a story in Northlanders. They did uh-huh. a book called yep. uh, New York Four that was about teenage girls in in New York, and that was really good. Um, everything they've done together has been fantastic, well, and this is kind of the cornerstone of that. Then I'm going to have to buy it. That's it. I'm buying it. So sold. Um, you know, Oni has been such a badass studio, a badass publisher for a long time. I'm going to talk about an Oni book that I am just in lust with. And this is a book that ostensibly has not been published since 2005. And uh, you're a fan of the Greg Rucka guy, aren't you? That Rucka guy, he makes all right stories. He, he, that kid's going to go somewhere one of these days. One day, yeah. Actually, that guy just announced that he's leaving Wonder Woman. I was going to bring that up at some point oh just to God. see what your reaction was going to be. I beat you to something that's on a timely basis, didn't I? Yes, you did. <laughs> Holy crap. I mean, that was just like, what? You know, but leave at the top, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, look, we talked a little bit about Marvel, a little equal time for DC. You know, we mentioned it before. I think it was my number one pick of the Rebirth yes. titles. and. It's still my number one pick of of all DC books right now. I mean, I need to fucking get in on that. You really do. I mean, Wonder Woman is the shit. I mean, it just keeps getting better, especially with the dual storylines and all of that. Um, and it's had great art from the get go. Yeah, I mean, Liam Sharp, who I was never a fan of. I said that before in the previous podcast. I love him on this book now, and Nicola Scott. And then they brought in Blix Blix Everly. Yeah, I believe that's the that's and the name. Uh, she she's incredible. I'd seen some of her stuff at Dynamite, and so to see her on a main stage in DC, yeah, I hope that's not the last time she gets to draw mainstream comics. I, I you know because I have a healthy mainstream comics diet. You know, as much as we're going to talk indie comics here, so I'd love to continue to see her in new and interesting places, both in the mainstream and create her own work. Um, Greg Rucka. I'll be honest, I actually discovered him before he he joined DC Comics to help write part of No Man's Land because I, I'm also a big fan of crime fiction. And he did these series of novels featuring the bodyguard character Atticus Kodiak. Um, That's like in my long-term goals in life uh-huh. is to read that series of books. <laughs> Finder, Keeper, Smoker. Just read. You will read those three books in a weekend. I mean, it is like candy for your brain. I also have no desire to read Batman No Man's Land, but I have every desire to read the novelization by Greg Rucka. Which is what I actually read from him first, because I was done. Mid-90s, mid to late 90s. Oh, especially with Batman Crossover City. It was just too much, and, and I was just on overload. And it wasn't because there were bad creators on the books by any means. I was just... I. I I you know, and then there was the shit coming out from Marvel at the time, the foils covers, the die cut covers. I'm the trying to bullshit. think of anything. I can't think of anything outside of Marvels that came out from you know ninety two to about ninety eight. It was a hard time to be a Marvel comics fan, and um, but I I decided to take that out on DC a little bit too as as. And I've since gone back and read No Man's Land trades and definitely see what was good about them. But I read the No Man's Land novelization. I was working at a major bookstore chain at the time. 
and uh, we had the pleasure of being able to check books out, and I took advantage of that. And that was an, that was my first exposure to Greg Rucka. So it was it was after No Man's Land had finished, they came out with the novelization of it. I read it and went, what the fuck? This is the shit. And he wrote these books? Okay, I need... So I bought three paperbacks editions. Again, Finder, Keeper, Smoker, and read them like that all in one weekend, the weekend after I finished No Man's Land. Holy shit. And then that guy wrote more comics. <laughs> he did that great run. I think it was Detective Comics with Sean Martinbro. Yes, and it, that's where they where they yeah. expanded upon Rene Montoya, and he created. Did he create Christmas Allen? I think he did. I want to say he created Christmas Allen, um, and then he also created uh, Sasha Bordeaux. Who? That's right. Who and she. Be- I only learned about her from reading uh, Omac. Oh, Omac Project. Okay, yeah. which led into the Checkmate series, which was fantastic in and of yep. its own right. Uh, we could talk DC forever. I think that counts as equal time. But the thing is, the point is, Greg Rucka is the person that has really captured your heart yeah. with this creator-owned book. Yeah, yeah. And the first creator-owned book that that I that I re- creator-owned comics work that I read from him was this little book that Oni put out called Whiteout, which was uh, turned into a terrible film starring Kate Beckinsale. Um, just, I really wanted that film to be good. Oh, God, I... I prayed for it, but I knew it wasn't going to be good because it was from the same creative masterminds as Underworld. So fuck that. Uh, <laughs> read the comics. Underworld's I mean, my guilty pleasure. It was okay and fair. Fair call. I'm not going to diss it anymore because I hate talking about it. But um, <laughs> going to move on from that. But Whiteout was great because there were like Frank Miller covers to that back when Frank Miller, yeah, he did some variant covers for that. My eyes just shot open yes. for the listeners. But then the interior art by Steve Lieber. Marvelous. Is that the stuff that kind of put him on the map? It really is. It really is. And then, of course, Greg Rucka writing a murder mystery at McMurdo Station in Antarctica. I mean, come on. It should have been a great film if they didn't Hollywood it the fuck up the way they did. Um, but I won't say that was like my favorite indie series until, you know, sort of the... Uh, and they've done three, two sequels. So there's like a trilogy of whiteout um, uh, trades out there somewhere in the world. I think the second one was Melt, and the second one was Whiteout, Black, or Dark, or something like that. It was originally going to be Thaw, but then they changed the title to it. So, um, anyway, read Whiteout. That's my quick my quick review of Whiteout is you have to read it. It's phenomenal. It's great. Wonderful comics. But there was the spiritual air to Whiteout, which was this book called Queen and Country. Oh my God. This was the best fucking comic. Holy shit. I can't, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm literally, I'm, I'm. He's fangirling out right now, guys. Squee. Um, Here's the thing. So a buddy of mine named Mike, which we've talked about in this podcast, he designed our new logo for the show. He introduced me to this great old British television series called The Sandbaggers. I don't expect you to know it. So it, Yeah, I don't. It's it's so obscure. There was a DVD release of the three series, as they call them, the three seasons of Sandbaggers in the United States for like a few minutes in the early 2000s, and they have since gone away. You will not find this series on Blu-ray. But it was essentially, it was a real-world look at... 
um, the Special Operations Division of the British SIS, which you might know from James Bond as MI6. But in Britain, it's officially called Secret Intelligence Service SIS. And uh, they had in the TV series... I thought Warren Ellis made that up. No. I, I say that because yeah. I remember reading that in one of his comics. In one of his James Bond comics. I, there was, it was definitely referred to. And uh, uh, was Eidolon the first one? Yes. Yes. So they, ma- they made reference to... No, S- Varger. Varger was, and then it was Eidolon. He yeah. did those two, two arcs. Um, anyway, so... But SIS is, is the actual official name of the British Intelligence Service, of His Majesty's Secret Service. Her Majesty's, I should say. <laughs> um, but anyway, Sandbaggers was this exceptionally real-world look at the spy game, you know, both domestically and around the world. And it had these exceptionally well-carved-out characters that I, I can't remember the name of the series creator, but... the it would have been impossible for this creator not to have gotten to know various career intelligence officers. And he wrote such great dialogue, such realistic dialogue, but then he, he could slip into this real crushing man, chest beating kind of dialogue like Herr Torvik. If, if I, I hate you so much right now, I'd shove this glass down your throat. You know, I mean, yeah. stuff like that you would see in the Sandbaggers. So it's a tremendous series. If you get a chance, look it up on YouTube. I'm sure there's some some there's maybe some episodes up on there. So do you feel like this was a direct influence on? I don't just feel. I know this was a direct influence because in the first issue of the of the first arc, Operation Broken Ground, uh, Greg Rucka writes in the letter columns pages how him and this. It wasn't a girlfriend of his, but a girl who was a friend of his as they were growing up uh, would go over to each other's house and watch episodes of Sandbaggers that was airing on American public television. And they both fell in love with this look at not just the spy game, but with the effect the spy game has on the people who play it. Now, sorry, real quick. Um, Just out of curiosity, is Sandbaggers in black and white? No, it's a full color series. Okay. But... This um, because I I know Queen and Country's in black and white, so I was just wondering if that had an aesthetic influence. Right. Um, Yeah. There, the influence is definitely on the characters. You could see this as a spiritual successor. There are characters in 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 Queen and Country that you go, oh wait a minute, that looks like what's his name? That looks like Sandbagger One, and uh, Queen and Country is about the Special Operations Unit in the British SIS, and they only refer to it as SIS, you'll never hear an MI6 reference, um, called the Minders. So you had the Sandbaggers, which was the TV thing, but they easily interchangeable for the Minders. So there are three Minders at all times. There's Minder 1, who's in charge of the Special Operations Division, Division, and he's also like the number one guy. I mean, if there was a 007 in the real world, that would be the closest thing to it. Now, 007 is not a real person. He's more like a tornado crashing through a casino most of the time. But Minder One is the guy who's been in the field the longest and is responsible for training the two junior officers that work under him. And then there is um, an, um, uh, Minder Three is the youngest one. He's the newest one of the bunch. And then you have Minder Two, who is Terra Chase, 
who was originally supposed to be, when he was conceiving of the series, was supposed to be the British intelligence officer that uh, Carrie Stecko from Whiteout met in that series, Lily Sharp. I think it was in Whiteout Melt. It was in the sequel series. So he linked them to be in the same... He was going to link them to be in the same universe? Originally. But then he decided to make it... make make uh, Tara Chase her own character, which I thought was really good because it, it let Whiteout be Whiteout. You know, in this, you don't need in these interconnected, complicated universes. No, not at all. We never were, you know, Carrie Stecco as a character only works in telling the story as white in Whiteout. Um, so let Carrie Stecco be the star of that show. You don't need a spinoff. <laughs> To, to, to make uh, the spinoff successful. That makes sense. And Queen and Country is about, um, it starts, uh, I want to say it was originally published in 2001 with great art by Steve Ralston. And then, oh, he's so great. I wish he did more shit. God, I'd love to see more of him right now. And Stan Sakai, of all people, did a, did a, a sort of like a backup. U- Usagi Yojimbo guy. Yeah. That was like hardcore espionage. No shit. No shit, Stan Sakai. That's that's insane. I can't imagine how his style and all that would fit into a world of hardcore spies. Well, and you just have to read it to understand it. And there are, God, I want to say there's eight volumes of, of Queen and Country. It was like 32, 33 some odd issues of the comic. And uh, they're all available. Each storyline is available in its own trade paperback, and they're constantly re- republishing these. So you should be able to go to your FLCS and be able to order it if it's not already on their shelves. But um, there is just as much. In fact, I would say that if you were to look at the, the, the each arc as its own creature, that there's probably 75 to 80% dialogue and anywhere from 15 to 25% action and thrills and chills and cloak and dagger. So there's a lot of like develop world development and character development. A lot of world that de- you invest in. Yeah, it gets you invested in it and it it just shows that dialogue can be just as thrilling when it's propelling a story forward and Greg Rucka sometimes I think does not get the respect as a guy who can just tell a story in a dialogue scene, you know, because he's written such great action set pieces like Whiteout, like um, like Wonder Woman, like Batman, like uh, Checkmate, who, which I was a, a, an espionage book that I was I was a big fan of. Um, hell, I mean, you and I, we were both talking off mic just before we started the show about Black Magic. Yeah. And, you know, w- well, with his Wonder Woman collaborator, Nicola Scott. The first thing that comes to my mind when it came out um, in 2003, I didn't know shit about shit about comics, mm-hmm. and he had Wolverine. Oh, and, that's right. You and that do. first yep. issue of Wolverine that yanks was... me in with all the dialogue and getting to know this character that calls Wolverine Mean Man. Yeah. And this, you get to follow the, the story of this girl. There's not a whole lot of action. You don't see Wolverine slicing up people. No. Most of the time, he's sitting at a diner reading a book. And just about as he's... Every time he tries to put his fork into a piece of pie is when the action starts. That's when you know the shit's going to hit the fan. Exactly. And so, yeah, like even in that and the things you listed, like 
Yeah, there's nobody out there like Greg Rucka that, that can pull you into a story just by setting up a scenario, telling compare, compelling characters in not so much thrilling situations, uh-huh. but they become thrilling. Yeah, exactly. It, it's just so amazing. And so many of the artists on this that got started on this book. Okay, so Steve Ralston, for one. Stan Sakai, the, the veteran genius of Usagi Yojimbo. Um, and I'm looking at Queen and Country Volume 2, which is Operation Morningstar. The first, okay, the penciler was Brian Hurt. And then the anchor was, I'm looking it up on the internet right now, Christine Norrie. But the, but the later half of the book is inked by none other than Brian Lee O'Malley. Holy shit. Uh-huh. A uh, side note, he actually lettered local. Oh, okay, cool. Him and Hope Larson. Yeah, and then the third volume, which is Operation Crystal Ball, is uh, both penciled and inked by Leandro Fernandez. Who? Okay, I thought Leandro Fernandez got his start over uh, at Marvel and working with Greg Rucka. That was the first time I heard of him. Yeah, doing uh, Coyote Crossing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that makes that makes so much sense of why they're working together and and at least doing Old Guard right now. Exactly, and. You you see, and I could keep going on, like uh, Operation Blackwall. Didn't Tim Sale work on that book? Tim Sale did the covers for the first arc on that book. Okay. And they were awesome. I mean, you know, the I mean, the first part of Operation Broken Ground, you find Tara Chase in Kosovo in the late 1990s. Now, if you know anything about the former Yugoslavia from your history class, you know that Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia didn't just have a little civil war. They had this explosion of a civil war, which caused, I think, three or four countries to be piecemealed out of that former Soviet bloc country. And so she was in Kosovo, where there was lots of, oh, I don't know how you call oh, let's just call it what it is, genocide that was taking place. And she was in the middle of it in a ghillie suit, which is the Marine sniper suit. And her job was to murder a Russia, a, a former Russian general who was running guns to various. He was like buying guns in Kosovo and then reselling cheap in Kosovo and then reselling them to terrorist armies all over the world. So her job was to bust a cap in this guy's ass. And she did in the first few pages of the book. But then the next four, you know, the rest of that book and then the rest of that arc of Operation Broken Ground is about how she got out. And <laughs> that's that's incredible. The fact that he can set up like all the action happens in front, like the big thing and then just uh, the consequences. Well, and I, and I should say this, the rest of the book, it's it, I'm sorry, because I'm just gushing about the book. She eventually gets home after being grievously wounded, but the issue or the backup that Stan Sakai drew um, was about the Russians that this general worked for. The, they called the Red Mafia, but they're called better known as the Bratva now, the Russian mob. Uh, the Russian mob puts a hit out on Terra Chase. They figure out who she is because so many, because in those days of the former Soviet Union, before it was rebuilt, so many former KGB officers went to work for organized crime. So these guys had the resources to put together, and that was Stan Sakai's story, put together how the hell could the mob figure out who a British spy was. And they didn't just, I mean, 
and that's the rest of Operation Broken Ground. So it sets the story of how the SAS works with the CIA, how the special relationship works between the American intelligence agency and their own on their home ground, what uh, SIS does with um, uh, MI5, which is the name of their security service. It's like, what would the counterintelligence unit of, of the FBI be if it was its own agency? And it was about the relationship of those three agencies all working together. And at the same point, you've got this real pot boiler of a thriller of this woman walking around the east end of London with the price on her head. And meanwhile, because the SIS is like the CIA, they cannot carry guns domestically. How are they able, you know, because... There, it, you got a MacGyver shit at that point. You, no, it's it's about hand to hand combat, and it's about how are you going to take out these Russians who are after Terra. It's about how minders, especially if it's uh, you know KGB guys, they're nothing to fuck with. Oh yeah, these are all and and they're former Spetsnaz and former you know naval infantry. I mean, these are just tough guy Russians, right? They send a bunch of thugs after her, but they put a million dollar U.S. bounty on her, and it's about not just about the politics, not just about the chase on her, but it was about the desire of her boss, who's known as Diops, Director of Operations, Paul Crocker is the guy's name. And it's about him wanting to send a message to the rest of the world where if you put a price on the head of any one of our officers, we're going to take yours instead. I mean, gangster. I mean, fucking gangster. He put a plan in front of the director of the organization whose code name is C, not M, it's C. And uh, he puts it in front, and he goes, oh, let me take a look at this. You wanted assassination? (laughs) (laughs) He wanted to full-on kill Russian mafia guys in Moscow. That was, and he put a plan together to do that. And they, to just take it to the heart of the beast and be like, I'm going to fucking chop your head off. That's right. I mean, we've been doing this. I mean, the, in, in the world of espionage, the Brits have been doing it just about the longest. And they're <laughs> some of the meanest Kurds out there. Uh, Kurs, Kurs, not Kurds. They're, they're good people, but the Kurs a bad guy. Uh, anyway, um, I'm gushing about this book. But if you want a book that, had, that marries real-world espionage with, with a high-octane thriller, I mean, when you do get to the action, because there's so much setup to it, the tension is just it's, I mean, honestly, you can cut the air with with a knife formed out of that tension. It is just, and it never stopped through the final issue of that series. It was the same thing. I mean, it, I, I no, it wasn't the same thing. But I mean to say is they never kept let let you down as a reader through the thirty some odd issues that came out. So he puts his foot on the gas and doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah. We get to love these characters, and characters die. I mean, Terra Chase is the is the viewpoint character through the entirety of the series, and there's th- there's a definite you know mega arc with her over the course of that series. But there was also three Queen and Country novels, full length novels that were written afterwards. The first of which was A Gentleman's Game. Uh, which featured Tara Chase in the lead role, only it was an all-fiction book, and I recommend those extremely highly as well. So there is a sequel to Queen and Country, and it's it's the Tara Chase novels. So good. So fucking good. I'm going to have to go out and check this out. I mean, I, I love Greg Rucka. Yeah. Um, even spy stuff that I find 
for me, uh, it, it can be a little dry. Mm-hmm. But Greg Rucka has such a proven track record for me. I'll fucking read anything he does. Yeah, it, it's it's so good. I, I should have saved that book for last now that I think about it. Because <laughs> it's the one that I love the most. Okay. But um, I'll tell you what, it's just a book that is so full. The first three volumes of the series are available if you're a Comixology Unlimited reader. Uh, the first three volumes. I am, so I'm excited fr- there you to, go. to check that out. They, they I'm going to borrow that. They're part of your subscription, so you can borrow those right away. The other five, look, the prices are, are cheap on those, on Comixology, and Oni doesn't overprice anything. I mean, most of their stuff, if not all of it, is in black and white. So already, well, within the last five or six years, they've sw- they've converted to all color. But back then, this was from a time yeah. where they were trying to save money and just do everything black and white while yep. creating the best comics that they could. And and they they made the most out of the medium, especially with the San, Stan Sakai stuff. I can't say it enough. He does stuff with watercolors in 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 grays, which is like. Dude, you have to look at this. If it's water, if it's not watercolor, then I don't know what the process and is called. But it is the shit. How even he at works, that point, tones. even at that point, he was yeah. a veteran. He didn't have to go out and excuse me. He didn't have to go out and do that. Yeah. So the fact that he came on with somebody of his uh, of his reputation, yep, uh, to come on and do that must have been extremely important, and it must have been an amazing story for it him was, to come on and. And draw that stuff. It was. You'll, you'll lo- I mean, honestly, if you just love great storytelling, you're going to love Queen and Country. So go out and read Queen and Country, and, and I'm telling this to everybody because I know you're going to read it. But I, I, I implore people who want something different from comics, this book delivers on every step of the way. So just great shit. Excellent. I'm- and there are no superheroes in this. The spies, the spies get shot. When they punch people, their hands hurt afterwards. When they get bruised, they are bruised. So we're seeing battle damage. It's it's as realistic as as any espionage thriller. You know, stuff like you know the Osterman weekend, three days of the Condor. Um, It's it's not even too much born ultimatum. I mean, it's it's stuff like real human beings. Um, The Fourth Protocol is another spy movie. So it's it's very grounded. It's very grounded, but there is that sense of heightened realism, though, So, which allows the story to go certain directions. Great book. Can't recommend it enough. I, I'm excited to read all this. So follow that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I'm going to go into a complete departure. Okay. Um, another creator that I buy anything sight unseen um, is Ted McKeever. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his art and how untraditional it is and how grimy it is. Yeah. And he was how, the guy who did, like, Metropole years and years yes, ago. Yes, he did Metropole. He's done... Uh, um, Eddie Current was his, big, yep. was his big one. What was the one, the book? It was something gothic. Um, Industrial gothic. Industrial gothic. For, he did that for Vertigo. For Ver- Vertigo. I remember loving that book. Um, I go out, you know, like, I went on this huge kick. I, I met him at WonderCon... When it was still in San Francisco. Okay. I can't remember what year. Okay. Um, and he was just such a, a pleasant guy to talk to. Yeah. And we just talked about storytelling. At that time, I really wanted to be a comic writer. Uh-huh. And I had no clue who he was. I just knew he drew my two issues of Ultimate Marvel Team-Up <laughs> with, with Doctor Strange from Bendis. And even that, I, at the time, I was just like, yeah, it's all right. But he's there. I'll get it signed. Yeah. 
And um, that's just, almost as bad as my previous story about meeting Brian Bendis years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, I went up to him and we talked for an hour and a half. No shit. And he at that time he was working on metaphor oh, for yeah. image. Yep. And uh, he was telling me, you know, all about it and how he he started with a beginning and an ending and worked through the middle and. For some like that, always that experience always stuck with me. Uh huh. And it took me a few years, but I just went and went on a huge binge of reading all his shit. Uh, my favorite of everything he's ever done is a book called Plastic Forks. Really? I, okay, I know nothing of this Plastic Forks you speak of. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not reprinted. You have to go out and find the issues. I had to order them off eBay. Oh, wow. They're not super expensive. I think they're like five bucks an issue, and it's a five-issue series. Okay. Uh, but each issue is 60 pages. Okay, so you're definitely getting your money's worth for 60 pages for five bucks. I mean, that's fantastic. And but what's the book about? So it, it, it's one of the few books that he's done in full color. Okay. And you get to see his art experiment with, with painting, with uh, watercolor, mm-hmm. uh, he just goes crazy with all the different things that you can do uh, artistically. And the book, the premise for the book is insane. So there's this doctor named Henry Apt who uh, has worked with a colleague, mm-hmm. um, and they develop a machine based off the uh, based off of the functions of the penal gland that allow humans to reproduce asexually. Really? And the machine is called the penolator. The penolator. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so they do experiments on the brain, and they're looking specifically at this penile gland and the way it functions. And uh, It kind of reminds me of that movie Reanimator. Oh, I, it's, you know, like the, the, the pineal gland shoots out of the guy's forehead, and he starts seeing, like, in different colors and all that. I've, n- I've never, never seen, seen Reanimator. Oh, my God, you need to see Reanimator. So... Yeah, in this you get to see like the the whole thing revolves around the function and how there's these art it's artificial basically whatever part isn't there they put an artificial uh, counterpart to it. Okay. Um, so you see this guy develop this. He's tried it on monkeys. His partner ends up getting transferred to another uh, another college essentially. Okay. Um, and either that or a research hospital. I can't remember. But this guy gets attacked by some of his test subjects, and which are apes. Okay. And <laughs> so essentially his apes, who he has taken away, he, he's cut off these apes' balls. Okay. So... Somewhat, I'm trying to follow you here. Somewhat, it's their revenge. You get the impression that they're like, fuck this guy. And, <laughs> and they get their revenge <laughs> on him. Too. You cut um, my nuts off. Yeah, and so... <laughs> they to die. Yeah, and they, he, they're wearing these machines. So it basically creates this whole lab disaster. And you see him, and uh, he's like wrapped up in a hospital... He's in there. He doesn't know how long. At some point, like, his wife comes and visits him, and, you know, he finds out that she's pregnant. Okay. And uh, he's just kind of like, well, I'm going to get out of here eventually, and then things will continue. And then he realizes how long he's been in the hospital, and it's about two months at this point. Oh, wow. And he basically is like, there's something wrong. Fuck it. And he bolts. 
And then at the end of the first issue, he finds out they've that nothing really is wrong with him. They've used him as the human experiment for the the penilator. Oh wow! So he's on the run now. By the look, by the way, just for our, our listeners right now, there's a look of absolute horror on my face. Like, uh, I don't want. I don't want to be subjected to the penilator, penilator, or however you pronounce yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, he's running around with this thing on, and he's just like, "What the fuck? I was only at the ape stage, so I don't know how this happened." Mm-hmm. And right around then, earlier, well, earlier in the book, you find out his partner died. Um, okay, and he, as the story goes on, he's on the run. It's a guy on the run. Um, who just runs into various people that help him. Uh, one guy, his name's Angel, and uh-huh. he's a former airplane pilot and is these secret service guys who, since he's part of this, obviously part of a, a government uh, experiment. Okay. Um, this guy comes in a, like a like a aircraft that's... Uh, like a crop duster, essentially. Okay. And he starts shooting at these fucking government agents while this guy's running away from him. Okay. And he saves, he saves Henry. And they develop a friendship as Henry's trying to get back on his feet and figure out, how can I get back to my family? And the whole story is, is it, it revolves around a guy who wants to get back to his family and points out why one human can't do it all. People need other people. And that family is an important thing. It's not just something you can fucking do yourself. Uh You need your friends. You need, you know, uh, a spouse. You need that love. You can't just... We can't just be fucking bacteria. Right, right. Uh, You know, we're we're not meant to, to just come into being just... Like that. Exactly. You know, we're, we're, we're social creatures. You know, we're creatures. You know, there's the whole nature versus nurture arguments. It's both. You know, it's, yes, there is your genetics that, that, that pile into everything. But to say that, that the social structure of a family, whether it's just you and your mom or you and your dad or, or you and your, your guardian, or whether it's the Duggars with 21 kids and counting, Family matters, you know, family helps develop who you become in the future. And this is what drives him to get back to his family. And then he finds out that his family has been captured, that this this government experiment is run by his dead, supposedly dead partner. Okay. And that this guy has all kinds of crazy fucking experiments all locked up, and he's threatening Henry to... Uh, basically experiment on his wife and his unborn child. Oh, wow. And Henry, they, they, they experiment on Henry further, and he becomes this, this weird beast, but yet he's driven by very human emotions, no matter how much he's distorted. Okay. And he ends up giving, making the ultimate sacrifice so that his family can live. Wow. I, I don't even know how to follow that book. You know, honestly, mine's going to sound completely shitty after that. So, <laughs> so that's, that no, that's that really sounds like 
God, there's just one mind-blowing concept after another in there. And it's Ted McKeever just losing his fucking mind in the art, and it's and ugly, but it's so Hank, experimental. And and for people unfamiliar with, with Ted McKeever, he's definitely of the Bill Sienkiewicz school of blowing people's minds. Like, this guy, this guy goes to the limit on some books. I remember feeling that way with Industrial Gothic and Metropole in particular, but hearing about Plastic Forks right here, I mean, this is just... Holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> and you get to see, even as he meets Angel, Angel's, I never thought of it until now, but Angel's goal is to, quote-unquote, get into the heavens. Oh, wow. And there's a reveal there of what Angel has been working on at, that's kind of a side plot that I never saw coming, but I thought was, I'm not going to spoil it, it was spectacular. That's fantastic. To see... Angel meet his goal, and that Henry came across an angel who was kind of by himself, and in the backyard he had fucking like the Grand Canyon growing or some shit, yeah. and that's where like some of the government agents go, and and he takes that as the time to be like, you know what, I'm gonna go to the heavens and I'm gonna share this with Henry, and it goes back to that theme of friendship and needing other people, and that self reproduction is not the future. Yeah. Which I think there are probably some proponents of nowadays, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm scared of those people, so... I'd never want a penilator machine on me. That just sounds terrible. It just sounds And ter- it looks awful. Could it's you like, please bring in the penilator? And uh, it, looks, it looks like some steampunk uh, chastity belt. I, I remember reading... I forget who wrote... Um, there was like this the uh, a modern retelling and prestige format Captain America miniseries that Kevin McGuire did the first part of the art on, and there was an you know he, Captain America was captured by the Nazis and he goes uh, you know and he's going through all of his different torture instruments ah here Captain America which one shall we use on you shall we use the dermatological exposer nine should we use this thing which sounds even more terrible nine. Ooh, look what I found here, the testicular perforator. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And there was, like, in each one, there was, like, the torture guy's henchman was right behind him, and everything he said went went worse and worse, and when he said testicular perforator, his guy went... Oh, and I can look. only imagine how Kevin because Qu- Kevin McGuire's the king of facial features. Oh my god! So I can't imagine how, the look on his face. Go on the internet, kids. This is the only time I'm ever going to tell you to do this. But go on the internet and type in "testicular perforator Captain America." You should be able to find that page online. That so is see what horrifying. I'm That's how I feel about the panel later. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like testicular perforator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you anything. Just don't put that on my nutsack. Please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we just did a milestone, Adam. This is the first time I've said the word nutsack on the graphic content podcast. I, the fact that you're keeping track of this stuff is kind of weird to me. But you know what? But I like it. I like it, too. We're living up to our name. You know, truth <laughs> in advertising yeah. here. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to cut you off, but I don't want to know anymore. I mean, it sounds like an amazing tale. I want to read this. I mean, it, it's just there's probably so much in the middle between what you, how you started yeah. and where it ended that... It's worth the journey alone. And it's right a quick there. read because okay. he utilizes big panels to uh, to let his artwork really shine. Okay. Okay. I'm going to check this book out. You have me sold. I think you probably have a good share of our listenership. 
I mean, it's worth going out and and digging up out of whatever back issue bin you can find it from. Right, and it's we're, never been collected. We're unfortunately. sitting and we're sitting here in the middle of a, middle toward to end of April right now. We're heading into con season right now, so dig through those bins at your local comic cons, or if you're going to con- the big show in San Diego. Uh, this is a series that sounds well worth digging for. Yeah, and it's it was made I think in ninety three, ninety two. So something this is like a that. book that's a that's got some years. Yeah, under its it was belt from here. it was from Marvel's Epic line. Okay, well then you got me sold already. I mean, now it's starting to sound familiar. The minute you said Epic, now I'm I'm starting to to get imagery of this. So yeah. good call, good call. So, so what's your this is this is a book that's that look this is a book that is not going to blow your socks off. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. It's kind of anticlimax, but it's it's a book that I love the premise of because I was missing Queen and Country so much. And yeah, I'd blown through all three Queen and Country novels. And I'm like, fuck, when am I going to read Tara Chase again? Um, there's this little book that also came out from Image Comics uh, in 2011, a book called The Activity. And uh, it was a book. Um, okay, but, you spoke about this before uh, on our DC podcast. Yes, and our first creator of uh, bo- the previous episode, right, with Sheriff of Babylon. So this is the same artist. Right, this is the same artist, Mitch Jarrods or Garrods. Please forgive me if I'm butchering your name because we know he's listening. Absolutely, I have to get one of those references in per podcast <laughs> as well. But Mitch Garrods, that's the name I'm going to stick to until I am corrected. Whereas Mitch Garrett's and Sheriff of Babylon uses this very naturalistic color where you can almost see the dirt on the roads in Iraq. This is a book that's heavily computer colorized and it works. I mean, it's almost manga in a way, colored manga in a way. Okay. I mean, just in the level of color detail, uh, sort of, uh, I'm trying to remember who did the, the coloring on that book. But the, art, the, the writer of the book, so that's Mitch Garrett's. I mean, his art is his art. I mean, the guy is just a genius as far as I'm concerned. But the guy who wrote the book, this guy, Nathaniel, or Nathan, Nathan Edmondson, um, this is a guy who, before he came to work in comics, much like Tom King, worked in international politics and intelligence. This is a guy who has a background of some kind, but he hasn't gone on to actually describe what said background well, is. Well, he kind of got ran out of comics, but... It seems like it, and I, I I don't know why. I mean, it wasn't necessarily I like... can tell you what I've heard after we okay. after we shut down, because right now it's it's basically rumors that, I ha- that are completely unsubstantiated. Yeah. Uh, and that I'm not there, so I don't really know. I just yeah, know stories. I'll, I'll be curious why, and I hope he goes back to doing creator-owned stuff. I, I personally liked his Punisher run, and I personally liked Red Wolf over at Marvel Comics. I thought that they, that they were both quality books. You know, he was doing some some interesting things over there. But, yeah, he did just kind of fall off the face of the map recently. So we'll talk off air about that. But this is a guy who kind of broke onto the scene with the book called Olympus, um, you know, which was a story of the Gemini twins, Castor and Pollux. And then he went from that to doing a book called The Light. And then he went from that to doing a book I know you've heard of called Who is Jake Ellis? Which was a really interesting book right there. Um, that was a nice five-issue miniseries about European criminal underworld. And then after that, an image, him and Mitch Garrods got together and did this book called The Activity, which centers around a unit called Team Omaha, which is a a subunit of a real-world intelligence agency inside the United States Army known as the Intelligence Support Activity, or ISA. 
And there's typically, ISA uh, was instrumental for finding at where the hell Pablo Escobar went. Remember the cocaine kingpin? Yeah, the, the guy from Cocaine, cocaine Cowboys? From, co- from Cocaine Cowboys and Narcos and, and all these, you know, the, these narco dramas, basically, that are starting to come to light nowadays. Um, there's this book by, um, and I, I can't remember the author's name right off the top of my head, but the same guy who wrote uh, the book that the movie Bat- Black Hawk Down was uh, taken from, um, he wrote this book called Killing Pablo, and he was the first American journalist to talk about the ISA. Nobody had even heard, and this is this is a, a, an organization that had multitudinous code names. Like they would change the name of the organization every couple of years. You want to stay fucking hidden? That'll do it. And they were as black budget as you can possibly be. I can't even remember some of the names, but it was like Yankee Dawn. Gray Fox, they had like a bunch of different code names to it. But the activity is, is what its specialty is, is signals intelligence. So it's like a field unit version of what the National Security Agency does, but in providing signals intelligence to special operations units on the ground or with close air support. What do you mean by signals intelligence? Signals intelligence is also known as the term SIGINT. And what SIGINT is, is, what SIGINT is, now there's no other way to say it. What SIGINT is, is, that's well, going to get you it. you got the comma. Yeah. <laughs> what SIGINT is, comma, is signals intelligence is anything um, that is communicated over wavelengths. So it is internet chatter, it is radio traffic, it's telephone calls, it's satellite phone calls. Anything that could be intercepted, anything that rides a kind of signal is SIGINT. And the activity provides real-time tactical SIGINT to groups like Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, you know, those real tier one intelligence or tier, tier one special operations units. So kind of like when we discovered that the Bush administration was hacking all of our or listening into all of our shit. No, that was that was the NSA. Oh, okay. they, they do it on a big level. They do it okay. on a strategic level. But on the tactical level, like I need to know where this dude is making this phone call right now. They can tell you because they're in the field with those operators doing that. So what the premise of the activity was is instead of farming out their operations to Delta, to SEAL Team 6, to MARSOC, which is the Marine Special Operations Command, to these other commando units, basically, what they did was is that they created this small unit called Team Omaha, and their their duty was, was not to blow shit up, but to prevent things from blowing up in the first place. So their job was almost like a Mission Impossible-style team in running these like small, short-term con jobs, infiltration, small-scale assassination, um, but doing things on such a small and quiet, minute level to prevent international incidents from blowing up from them. And it was just, to me, it was a real interesting thing. It's one of those things where um, I almost don't want to talk about it because I, I think it's a book that that should be discovered still. It, there's three volumes of it. Um, when uh, Edmondson and Garrods went over to do Punisher, the book ended at issue 16, which was the culmination of the third volume. Well, I was going to say, was it like a definitive ending or was it like it, an open-ended? It, it was. It, the, the, the book can easily go into a fourth volume. 
I mean, they can continue doing it, but then again, it doesn't hurt it ending at volume three either. Um, one of the reasons why I want to bring it up is it's just everything that Edmondson has written pretty much since Olympus has been picked up and optioned by various uh, Hollywood studios. So uh, David Yates, uh, who's a big-time director, he's got who, the rights to who is Jake Ellis, I think 20th Century Fox, is going to be. I vaguely story. remember hearing about that being picked up. Yeah, and David Yates is the shit. Ridley Scott's production company that he founded with his late brother Tony Scott, Scott Free Productions, they have the rights to develop the activity itself. And it would be, again, in that vein of Queen and Country, of having just enough realism, but with the sen- but there is this uh, sense of internecine politics between the various branches of the military because everybody wants the ISA, wants the activity to provide them with the real, real-time on-the-ground signals intelligence that their other units need, but that there's a political game being run between the various branches of the Department of Defense and who gets to operate on that intelligence and why should the activity have a black bag team of their own when they should have their hands full just doing their own job why should they be muscling in on what Delta does or what SEAL Team 6 does Wow, and whatnot? And it was a book that you could tell that was written like Queen and Country, how it was inspired by the Sandbaggers and the developer of that show was in touch with the British intelligence community. You can tell that Nathan Edmondson as a creator was in touch with both the intelligence community and the military special operations community as well. And I admit it, I'm a sucker for Tom Clancy-style adventures. You know, stuff that has potential real-world impact, real-world effects. You know, I'm thinking right now just how much this book would be awesome if they were somehow able to penetrate North Korea's defenses and and somehow destabilize their nuclear capability. That would be right up the alley of this book. And goddamn, I would love to see a volume four about them trying to operate on the North Korean peninsula above the 48th parallel. I mean, that would just be the shit. That's that's like wish fulfillment for me. I know it's not as long and protracted a review as it is uh, for you with Plastic Forks. I mean, Plastic Forks was just like, wow. I mean, my mind was expanded like Dave Bowman's at the end of 2001, <laughs> A Space Odyssey. Well, But d- this is just one of those neat, grounded books that just, you know, that there are these real-world heroes. I mean, just like Queen and Country, these guys get shot and they die. These guys get shot and they, they have lifelong injuries and have to muster out of the service. Wow. Okay. Guys, so you're talking about guys with, who have canes because they've had their. Well, you don't you see know. them anymore because yeah. they've been shot and they have to get out of the service. You know, they go to work in, you know, analyzing intelligence at another agency. There, there is, I mean, this is a book with consequences where you get attached to these characters and then cap, you know, one of them's gone. And then a new one trying to join the team, and they don't want to get close to that person because um, they were close. They, the original Team Omaha went on a mission but lost its members. So the viewpoint character at the first issue, I forget what her code name was because they only went by code names at first. You know, like Bookworm, Monk, all these other different characters. I don't even know if Monk is one of the code names. But, but it, essentially, they all had different code names. And that's how you got to, to, to love these characters. And they almost kept this new agent at arm's length because they didn't want to forge any bonds with her for fear of them getting hurt emotionally 
from wow. from her possibly dying because she's a newbie out in the field on that, these dangerous, quiet little missions that no one will ever know that's about. That's so intense. Yeah, I can I can only imagine the 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 emotional risks that have to be taken whenever you're building bonds and under that that much secrecy. Yeah, and and there were these guys who who wrote into the book who were obviously you know writing under under pseudonyms letters who are guys who were in Delta Force, who were in SEAL Team 6, who were Green Berets, who were Air Force forward combat controllers, um, pararescuemen, who wrote into this book to say how much they got what Nathan Edmondson was doing and that he wasn't in any way, shape, or form writing outside the bounds of logic for, for a book and creating the book's reality. And this is a little comic that ran 16 issues from Image Comics from 2011 to 2012. And uh, Jesus, how I want, I, I think this book is more timely now than ever, given the upheaval in our own nation's political system, which also, you know, you got to think, I'm not trying to turn this into a political podcast, but our current president has pretty much ripped the carpet out from under the intelligence and special operations community you know, with the way that he's running things already. And this is a book, or there should be some spiritual successor to this book right now, you know, from somebody who has that in-depth knowledge of a Nathan Edmondson or a Greg Rucka or something like that. Or Tom King. Yeah, or Tom King for that matter. You know, I would love to see Tom King take a swipe at this. I know he's doing great stuff, you know, in the mainstream DC universe with Batman and all that. But Jesus, I think we need a book like this to help us understand the sacrifice of these very real American heroes. And, uh, and it, this is a book which um, was reviewed on many political and military special operations group websites. So this, this comic reaches outside the bounds of just comics. This brought in operators. I mean, operators is a, sort of a catch-all term for a special operations um, soldier, marine, airman, sailor. Um, They brought people who had not really read comics since they were kids back into comics with the stories it was telling. That's magical. It is magical. And the stories that these guys told in the letters page and on the website, I, I, I miss it. You know, I miss it. And that was another great thing about Queen and Country is, you know, the trades are great, but what's even better are the individual issues, which had the best letters column of comics in the 90s and or from in the early 2000s. Because these independent comics, comics companies could put, if they wanted to, three or four pages of letters into their books. And Queen and Country was, it was one of those books that did that. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to hit up the activity. Is it available? Do you know if it's on Comixology Unlimited? I don't know if it's on Unlimited. I know it's at a reasonable price on Comixology. And Image is always doing like 50% off sales and that kind of shit. So it's affordably to get. Yeah, it'd be super affordable to get. But this is another one. I have yet to pick up the real world editions, but I'm going to, I, and I have not read volume three yet. So I've not read the last of the, th- of the three volumes. Oh, wow. So okay. this is all based off of 12 issues of comics. Well, that sounds like you're... I think I know what you're going to go read after we finish this well, up. Well, I, I want to get volumes one, two, and three all at the same time. Again, it needs to go on the libra- in the library. Okay, and you can just sit and, and binge the entire series. Exactly. I mean, three volumes, probably... I, I want to say they're 15 bucks a volume. I mean, at full retail. 
So 45 bucks, you've got 16 issues of a comic that will hit you like a punch to the gut. Yeah, I know. And again, I know I haven't really talked about, about the story, but when you're talking about con jobs and real spy work and stuff like that, I don't want to spoil the characters to you that much, but it's the politics behind Team Omaha. It's not all of Team Omaha's operations. It's what what's happening at headquarters and them constantly having to justify their operations to the rest of the special operations community, which is just as good as the actual uh, uh, stuff that takes place on the ground and wherever they're operating at the time. Wow. I, I'm definitely going to be uh, checking this out. Cool. So, uh, yeah, I've not read a whole lot by Nathan Edmondson, so I think this sounds like a perfect gateway to give his, his material a chance. And, 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 and as you said, Mitch Gerards is a genius. Yeah, and check out who is Jake Ellis as well. Um, I've, I only know The Light and Olympus by reputation. If I see it at a comic show, at a Comic-Con or something like that, I might pick him up. Um, I discovered in a moment who is Jake Ellis, and I liked it. But I wasn't like, oh, this is the greatest shit ever. But it, I thought it was good. But then I read the activity and went, holy crap, this is the spiritual successor to Queen and Country right now, really, when I think about it. Wow. In how real world they treat these heroes. They're fantastic. That's, that's it. I'm going to go read that. Okay. That's what's going to happen. Um, so, again, the, the transition like a train wreck. Yeah. Um, might as well just crash it right through the brick wall. My last book is also an image book. Okay. But it, it started, uh, it, it recently got picked up by IDW. Okay. Um, and it features hometown boy, Sam Keith. Oh, I know where you're going. Okay. He is my favorite creator of all time. Okay. He is one of those guys, even if he has a two-page story in something, I will go fucking find that and I will buy it. If you can say art has a voice... Nobody else has a voice like Sam Keith. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that guy, and I, our friend, John Wright, who is the writer of Mecha versus Kaiju, is also, I think, like you, the world's greatest Sam Keith fan. Yes. I, uh, one of the things I'd resigned to early uh, in my discovery of his work was that I was never going to meet him. <laughs> um, Does he just not do shows? He sh- is a complete recluse. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he doesn't do shows or anything like that. And if he does, they're very sporadic yeah. or, you know, they're very rare. Yeah. And uh, so uh, there was a little show on MTV back in the 90s. Uh, an animated adaptation of The Max. Yes. I remember it well. It, it was The Max. Yeah. And so I watched that on a whim one day, and I, I was stunned. I was... I, I can't even describe to you... How, what an impact that had on me. Now, don't take this the wrong way, okay? The animation on the Max was not the selling point of that series because there was not a lot of heavy animation in that. I mean, they told, I mean, the, the characters moved, don't get me wrong, but I mean, it wasn't the most complex animation that you've seen, but it, it relied so heavily on the original artwork of, of the creator that no other animated show, and we're going to do a show on animation, coming in the near future. That Just, sounds fun. We're going to do that. Um, and we're going to have a guest for that episode as well. Oh, great. Yeah. So anyway, um, just a little mental side note there. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, but I remember watching the Max after reading the Max when it was originally at Image Comics, like way back in the 90s. 
and going, wow, they're letting the artists do the art for the animation. And trust me when I say that there was not complex animation is not a diss at all. They let the art tell the story. Anyway, sorry, I, and, I'm and running right over. You know review. what? That honestly, that I couldn't have said it better myself. The art in that is such a faithful adaptation of the first eleven issues yep. of the series, and I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It, it had such an impact on me with all the metaphors yep. and all. I mean, it was just thick and juicy and rich with character and universe building and. I, that shit crazy yep. ideas. Yep. Um, Nonstop. For, yeah, from front to back. So after that, I went and I read the Max. Uh huh. And that book, that's my favorite series of all time. Okay. That is the best series I've ever read. I own it in every format except for one that they've ever published. No shit. Um, and that's, they did this, IDW did a limited four-issue giant-ass hardcover for every one four issues. One of those artist, artist edi- edition? No, no, it wasn't. It was this weird limited edition. Okay. Uh, and it was like purple purple hardcover with a slipcase. Huh. And but it was each was a single issue of the original. No, it was a, it collected four issues. Oh, got it, got it. Okay. And uh, part of it was like, they, they did a run where basically Sam Keith threw a big-ass picture in it. But, I mean, you're talking like a thousand bucks or some crazy shit that oh. I just, I don't have money for. Well, when you hit it big... With exactly. whatever your creative endeavor, whether it's writing or music, that's Hopefully gonna hit this. first. Well, you know what? I think people do become millionaires from podcasts. Uh, ask, <laughs> ask Kevin. Hey, ask Kevin Smith. Yeah, but Kevin Smith is Kevin Smith. Fair you enough. You know, I, I I'm also fat, but I don't have the talent. So, <laughs> you know. Um, but Jesus, I mean, I remember first going, "Wow, Sam Keith is doing a DC comic book. What's this thing he's doing? The Sandman? What the fuck is that?" And I read that when what the hell is this book? And then he was gone. <laughs> he, know? Reading his his uh, thoughts on that was very interesting. It's only been recently yeah. that he's come to grips that he's the co-creator of that character. Wow, that's huge, especially given the back and forth with is there going to be a Sandman movie or is it going to be an HBO TV series or what? I mean, eventually Warner Brothers is going to do something with the Sandman, with Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Um, But if it wasn't for Sam Keith, we would not have that character. Which was a complete groundbreaking series and a high point in comics history. During the time that, that Demetrius Giffen and McGuire Justice League was going on at the same time, the Justice League International, I want to say that they they were, they, before Sandman shunted itself off into Vertigo Land, it, I want to say the JLI was in issue two or three yeah. of that series. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it was just, it, I'm still like, wow, now I'm thinking back to my, I was thinking I was 19, 18 or 19 when that book first came out. And it just, it was one of those books where I didn't read the entire run of Sandman, but I remember Sam Keith on that, and what is he going to do next? And then, then seeing the Max and go, oh, my God, this guy is fucking legit. I mean, this guy, he is here for his voice. He is here to, to have his art speak for itself. He wants to tell his own stories. He doesn't want to tell other guys' stories, for the most part. And uh, I, I, wow, 
yeah, I'm going to need to get in on that IDW action. Yeah, I, um, I own I own the digital trades. Uh-huh. I own uh, the complete... The IDW released the Max Maximized, uh-huh. which was... It was recolored by Rhonda Pattinson, and it looks fantastic. Huh, okay. And it's all... They, all 35 issues, it just wrapped up not too long ago. Okay. Um, and I own both sets of covers. I own the original... Uh-huh. Uh, the original run from Image, the Friends of the Max that came along with it. I guess one of the only things I don't have, uh, I have the glow in the dark. I don't have uh, the, I have the darker image in which it started in. I don't have the fucking 3D issue they did. Damn it. And I have the, and I, but I have the, the Wildstorm trades. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, I have the, I have the physical hardcovers for the, that so IDW. you for complete. Max run. That's I mean, barring the thousand dollar issues. Yeah, that's that's how much I love this series. Um, Sounds this, like me and Dreadstar right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, this that that is the fourth reference to Dreadstar on a graphic content podcast. I think. Yes, so. I know that you were you you I'm the down. way you described that last time. <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell you liked it a little bit. Yeah, but no, this sounds. I mean. God, Adam, that's fantastic. The Max is... Uh, the art in it alone is stuff that, that bent my mind and challenged me as a person. And the he would go from very simplistic to scratchy to photorealistic to... I mean, he jumped around to every single art piece that you could do. And... One of the issues for the cover, he, it's a close-up of the Max's face that he's fucking built out of, like, nuts and bolts. Damn. And it's just a photo. Wow. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. As an artist, I, I have yet to see anybody as versatile as him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this series, to, to give you a summary of the series, it revolves around uh, this big purple guy named Max yeah. and his social worker, Julie, and... There's a place called the Outback. And so... And by big purple guy, we mean like Hulk big. Yes. and With giant shoes. Giant shoes. I mean, Sam Keith likes feet the way that Rob Liefeld doesn't like feet. Um, That's fair assessment. Absolutely. And that's a good thing. And then he has... You know, there was... Look, Wolverine was an all-pervasive character pretty much since the day he debuted in that issue of Hulk. 30, 40 some odd years ago. But instead of putting up, you know, like sets of three claws popping out of each hand, he had the, this one giant claw like finger. Yes. It I, was I, like I, a middle finger that was just a fucking claw. That was like a, yeah. I mean, it was about the, it was like the size of a shovel almost on this guy's yeah. hands. And I mean, he had this weird grin. I mean, nothing we say. And, and Adam is is the fan, obviously, for for Mr. Keith here. There is nothing we can say that could adequately describe the Max. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, just look it up. The Max, M-A-X-X, it's two X's. That's how extreme he is. Yeah. And we don't mean extreme in a 90 way, 90s way. We mean extreme. In an in, artistic way. In an artistic way. This guy is of the same level talent of weird creative talent as like a Ted McKeever or a Bill Sienkiewicz. I mean, this guy is amazeballs. In in my opinion, nobody rivals him in the industry. And so this story revolves around the Outback, and it turns out the Outback is a section 
of their imagination. And it represents uh, this guy named Mr. Gone can travel through these people's imaginations. And it reflects pieces of themselves that they've either cut off or that they've buried deep inside with hurt and pain that they have while Mr. Gone is going through his own hurt and pain and processing it in such a gross, horrible way. And then you find that, and, and at the, after that, it really breaks down into this relationship between Mr. Gone's daughter, who's mm-hmm. named Sarah, yeah. Julie, yeah. and Max. And by the end of it, you realize, you realize how much they depend on each other's. And then the second half of the series breaks into to Sarah, 10 years in the future. And you get in the first issue that launches that is written by Alan Moore. Oh, wow. And oh, okay. And so he fucking from you think he loses his mind from like one to 21. Uh, no, he fucking goes crazy at the end. There's parts that don't even like match up. He's just like doing one off stories of people who fucking like have some weird sex thing going on that that's how they have to, to cure their problems in their relationship is by freeing themselves sexually. That's amazing. Um, you have, I mean, and then at the end, at the very end of the series, it has the best ending that I've ever seen okay. in which you get to see the end of the world. Wow. And you get to see how those characters interact in their journey from issue one all these years later all the way to the end of 35. So you know you've essentially described Leonardo da Vinci meeting Miles Davis. I mean, that this guy was, this guy had no fear of improvisation. Like, yeah, we're going to go ahead, and it, the story doesn't seem like it's very connected, but it's all part of the same music, man. Absolutely. And I, I am just, I'm, I'm grinning from ear to ear right now. I mean, this book just sounds dynamite. I, I could literally spend a whole podcast talking about this book. I don't want to give too much away, so I haven't been super descriptive, right? but you need to go read it. It's one of those things, if you call yourself a comics fan, it's something you have to go through at least once. Yeah. And for me, I've read it four or five times, and I get something new out of it every single and time. And I would say even more than a comics fan, I mean, we can all be fans of comics at different level, but if, if you want to really explore the deep cuts of comic art that is out there, don't make any mistake about it. Sam Keith is an artist first. This guy makes art. This is not just a typical comic book. This is sort of like how I feel about Alan Moore and J.H. Williams' uh, Promethea, which came out from America's Best Comics, where basically it was dissertation on Alan's thoughts on his faith, which is in hermetic magic. And, you know, he went off on these weird tangents and stuff that didn't seem to make sense, you know, stuff that you just yeah. brought about in the Max. There, there's all kinds of, of stuff about feminism and right. metaphors yep. about where you're at in your life uh, versus where you're going to be yep. and what goes into that. Um, I mean, for me, it's an important piece of literature. Yeah. So, um, and it was started off, I don't want to forget William Mesner Loeb's who helped, who helped uh, dialogue the first bit of the series. And then Sam Keith really proves himself as a writer. Dude who is on. not who is not given some of the 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 respect that I think that he deserves as Bill Messner Lobes. Uh, 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 he has has done such. I mean, a real journeyman writer like this guy would just come in, write a book, get it started, move on to the next book, write a book for twenty 
30-ish. You see, he's the guy who gave us Wally West as the Flash right after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah, he was the one. He developed Linda Park as yeah. a character. Yep. And so, so, so all due respect to Bill Messner-Lopes. I mean, yeah. quality dude. And then Sam Keith, I mean, an artist's artist and, and, a, and a great dude. But Adam, I'm, I'm looking at the... I, obviously, you know we use GarageBand, so it doesn't tell me how long we've been at it, but we've been at it almost two and a half hours. At no, this shit. Point. no shit. No oh shit. Oh, my God. We I'm hit, sorry, people. <laughs> we are. I mean, the marker right now is at 3250, but we had that flub at the beginning of the episode. So oh, my God. I'm just, you know, I'm peeling back the curtain. You can see behind the curtain here at yeah. Graphic Content Studios. So we have a life to live outside of this. Yeah, so we should probably wrap up. Um so Adam and I are going to geek out offline a little bit, um, and we definitely encourage you to go out and not just collect Marvel and DC books, but get out into those areas of your local comic book shop, wherever you are, and find those image comics. Support your favorite. Find a favorite creator. First of all. And support the fuck out of them. Support the creators. Get in on Kickstarters. Get in on Patreon campaigns. Find guys who... Sp- and... and, and both male and female creators out there who speak to you as uh, to whatever part of your soul or brain, however you experience comics, find those comics. And they're not all superhero comics. Obviously, I talked about a lot of comics that have major explosions and ray gun fights and spaceships and commandos and shit. But I love the Max also. You know, I love, I mean, God... Now, we're going to have to do a third volume of this, but I promise to release these episodes first. I want to talk about Bill Sienkiewicz's Stray Toasters. I want to talk. <laughs> yeah. We're, yeah. We're going to keep doing these creator-owned uh, comics. As long as we have creator-owned comic stuff, we'll do uh, various episodes based on them. And if you're a creator of a comic, whether you're local to the Northern California area or from outside of the area... We'd love to talk to you about your work. So hit us up on the Twitter. That's the quickest way to get a hold of us. Our Twitter handle is at Graphic Podcast. We're also on Instagram. Um, Adam, you need to be posting more on Instagram. I, I know. I've kind of been lacking. I'm kind of wagging my finger at yeah, you, young I've, man. I've been la- I was good at first, and now I'm kind of dragging my feet. But okay, I need to... so, so start posting those pretty pictures that you okay. find. Of stuff. Well, yesterday was Midnight or Monday. So. Well, that's true. I like that theme. Yeah. I'm, I miss So that. I'm going to start putting Midnighter pictures mm-hmm. up every Monday. I, I'm kind of digging that, you know? So um, And maybe after, you know, every time Donald Trump says, says something stupid, put pictures of him in a podcast. Kissing. I, Fuck I, yeah. That's fu- Fuck yeah. That's fighting power right there. Fuck yeah. Hashtag nerds fight the power. Um, but anyway, so we're at Graphic Podcast on Twitter. Our handle on Instagram is graphic pod, uh, graphic content dot podcast. Uh, we are we have the graphic content podcast Facebook page, so we would love for you to like that. I pretty much manage that one right there. Adam, I think the kids can find you at Adam S. Messinger with two S's yes. uh, on the Twitter and uh, everything. everything. Just everything. I'm at Jimmers with three M's. Uh, my Instagram is at Jimmers with five M's, but I haven't posted on that myself. For- I've been wanting to talk to you about that. Oh, I don't really? I don't know if now's the time to do that. I think we need to rebrand you, Jim. Really? I think as more than just Jimmers. I do. I think GC. Okay. Uh, Jimmers. Hmm. 
at D, at GC, GC Jimmer. GC Jimmers. That's what I, that's what I think. It's just a just an idea. Just that, wow, you're you're now now who's impro- improvising here? Yeah, um, yeah. I'll think on that. I will think yeah. on that. But in the meantime, Adam, what would what do we tell people at the end of all of our podcasts? Go read a fucking comic book. And after you read a fucking comic book, listen to graphic content. We'll see you next week.